Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In the previous program, I was talking about Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, it says, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. To God, it's evident, and to those of us who know what it means to live by faith, it is evident. But to those who don't, who have not really encountered the living God in that way, it's not that evident. For someone who may have been in the faith for decades and yet lived their life according to their works or according to the law, they did not really live by faith, it still is not going to be any more evident than to a new believer who just got saved, who was just recently resurrected by the Spirit of God. What is evident, or what is obvious, is the fact that Jesus died for our sins, he died for the sins of the world, he set the world free from the burden of living according to the law, so that we could enter into a new way of life, and if an individual will enter in, to this new way of life, then they will have the opportunity to discover what he's talking about. But for the most part, what people do is they turn back to the law, or they turn back to a system of works, or a system of good and evil, what is right and wrong. They begin to live according to the standard that they believe they should live by, waiting patiently for something to be revealed to them. And I suppose that as a default, if a person does not know what it really means to live by faith, that's a reasonable approach to take, but unfortunately, this is what tends to happen. What tends to happen is that this becomes a barrier that prevents an individual from resting in the truth that God has revealed. For example, if you are going to live your life according to what is good and evil, according to what is right and wrong, if you're going to do that, then eventually, and it shouldn't take very long, but eventually, you're going to discover failure. You're going to realize that you have failed in some way. And when you do, then you are going to assume that you are separated from your God because he will hold that sin against you. And as soon as you do that, you are no longer resting in his forgiveness. You are no longer resting in his acceptance. And then there is nowhere to go in your faith except downhill from there. That's why it's more important for an individual to do nothing than to do something When it comes to these issues, because what a person will do or can do or might do may create a stumbling block in their life so that they will not grow in their faith. They will choose something that appears to be second best, but in the end it turns out to be the very barrier that prevents an individual from growing and maturing in the love of God. Now this expression of the just living by faith is a very important expression in the Christian church especially in the Protestant movement. It's a very important phrase because this was one of those things that the founders of the Protestant movement, unfortunately people forgot what they were protesting and became Protestants, but it's one of those things that inspired them 
to separate from the religion of their time that which was sponsored by the Catholic Church. To say that the just shall live by faith means that the just will not live by their works. Now, if an individual is living by their works, then what that means is that their works are defined by a system of law. Whatever that law may be, it may be the law of Moses, or it may be the law of the organization, or of the institution, of the church, whatever it may be, when an individual lives by what they do, or by what they don't do, then they are living by their works. And how are these works defined? They are defined by a system of law. Now, this can be very awkward for an individual who's never experienced living by faith. The first question that a person normally asks is, well, then what do I do? Well, that's the problem, is that this has nothing to do with what you do. When I say we live on the basis of what he has done, and then somebody responds by saying, well, then what do I do? then that reveals that this individual has no idea what I just said, has no concept of what I just said. Not only that, but they are now going to ignore what I have said. Instead of asking, what do I now do? You need to ask the question, well, then how will that be real in my life? Can you give me an example of what it means to live on the basis of what he has done? That's the kind of question that needs to be asked. What will my life look like that will be a reflection of that that you just described? What what can I look at? What can I consider? Can you give me an example of a circumstance that would describe this? Well, certainly, first of all, how many decisions do we make in order to get God to respond to us? What kinds of things do we do in order to get God to respond to us? Well, from a religious point of view, just about everything that an individual does or does not do is defined by we are going to pray, we are going to do these good deeds, we are not going to commit these sins in order to get God to respond to us. But if our God has already responded to us, if he has already begun to reveal himself to us, if that's the case, if he is already giving to us everything that we truly need for our life and for our godliness, if that's the case, then why are we trying to do things in order to get him to respond when he already has? The real issue is that we are not acknowledging the response that he has already given to us in light of our condition. And so instead of doing all of these things in order to get God to like us, which is a reasonable summary of what people are attempting to do, we need to rest in the fact that he already does like us. If that's true, then we can cease from doing all of these things. We can stop from doing all of these things. We can put these things out of our lives. When we do that, then yes, it is true that we will free up some time. We will experience a sense of liberty that we may not know what to do with. But that does not mean that we are now going to be in a situation where there might be more time that we might sin. Instead, we can apply our time in a different way. We can live our lives doing the work that we need to do. We can take time to rest. We can take time to do other things that may have nothing to do with rest or work, but have to do with relating to one another, that have to do with exploring the world that he has created for us by taking the time to invent and innovate and to do things that will eventually reduce perhaps the amount of labor that we would normally have to engage in, there are other things in life besides religion and sin. There really are. 
Live your life. When you live your life while you are living your life, your God will relate to you in unique ways. And I mean this in the sense that this is an individual experience, but I can give you some examples that most people will encounter. For example, as you are living your life, eventually someone is going to violate you. Someone is going to hurt you. Someone is going to sin against you, just to give you a summary of that. When an individual does that, what are you going to do? What is going to be your response? Well, of course, if you believe that your God holds your sins against you, then you're certainly going to hold their sins against them. But if you are resting in the truth that your God has already provided you with forgiveness, then you will be able to forgive them as your God has forgiven you. And of course, if you have never experienced this, or if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then listen to this series I've produced on forgiveness. Start from the first program and go all the way to the last one. It's the last program in the series that I produced on forgiveness that I explain how everything I said in the entire series can be used and understood and applied so that you may forgive others with the forgiveness that your God has given to you. That has to do with living by faith, not living by works. Living by trusting and relying on His forgiveness. And as a result of that, it will be expressed in your life, in your life experience. As you are living your life, it will be experienced because of your trust and your dependency. But if you are living by your works, you will not know this forgiveness. If you are living by the law, you will not know this forgiveness. And so your life will never be a reflection of living by faith. It will only be a reflection of what it means to live by works. So to say that the just shall live by faith and not by works can certainly set people free from a tremendous amount of religion. But being set free from a tremendous amount of religion is not going to be the solution. You must actually enter into this life of faith. You must actually pursue the conclusions of it and let the Lord do a work within you, which is a lifetime experience. That's what it means to live. It means to experience this over your lifetime, over the time period that you are here in this world on this earth. And so I wanted to spend a few more minutes talking about verse 11 because it's very important to realize that this verse may have a very important place in the Christian world, especially in the Protestant Christian world. It may have a very important place there, but unfortunately, if an individual does not know what it means to live by faith, if an individual does not know what it means to be set free from the law, if they don't know the implications of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has provided for us, if they don't know that, then this verse will be nothing more than a quotation that will supposedly end all discussion, dispute, and argument. And that may be true from an intellectual point of view, but it is not the end. It is actually the beginning of a life that we are to live. And if an individual ends there, ends with this conclusion, but does not move forward into the life that we now have before us in light of this truth, then the truth that is expressed here will never be realized in an individual's life. Okay, in this program, I would like to proceed into verse 15. This is Galatians chapter 3, 
verse 15, where it says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, he introduces the importance of a covenant. When two people make an agreement with one another in order to accomplish something, that is a covenant. And neither one will break that covenant. Of course, if they do, then what they decided to try to accomplish will not be accomplished. And so the covenants that people made with one another were very important and recognized as very important. And the consequences of either person failing to do what they agreed to do, the consequences would be severe because it would affect the other individual or individuals who were a part of that covenant. And so nobody would break a covenant. If they did, then who would make a covenant with that individual in the future? Well, if you have a small community, then you might find this to be a very serious matter, and you may consider the seriousness of making covenants to the extent that even if you discover that you are going to lose out, you're not going to have an advantage to fulfilling your part of the covenant. You may decide not to fulfill it just because you discover that it's no longer going to be to your advantage to do so for whatever reason. In a small community, you might still do that. You might still maintain integrity and do what you have agreed to do, even though it will cost you in the end, so that you will have the opportunity to engage in another covenant in the future from which you may be able to prosper. If you're in a large community, however, there are many people who may not discover what you have done, that you have violated the covenant, and so you might be able to make a covenant with somebody else who just simply doesn't know any better. And this is one of the obstacles, one of the challenges of large communities, that eventually there is a decay that can be experienced just by the breakdown in agreements and covenants that people make with one another. But during the time that Paul wrote this, and especially in the place that he was writing to, People understood the importance of covenants and agreements and recognizing that people simply did not break those covenants. And he uses that in order to proceed into verse 16 where he says, Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Now I explained earlier that this promise had to do with the promise of the Messiah and the promise of what the Messiah would accomplish. And the summary of this has to do with the restoration of the Holy Spirit. For example, in verse 14, it says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise of the Spirit, as in the restoration of of the Spirit, the Spirit that had been lost in Adam. That is the fundamental problem that exists between man and God. God created man to be alive because of the choice that Adam made. Mankind died, and the death that he experienced was a spiritual death that, of course, eventually resulted in a physical death, but that was a consequence that occurred later. The consequence of spiritual death was what caused the fall of humanity. That is what caused Adam and Eve to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. That is the fundamental problem that exists between man and God, and he 
promised that he would provide a solution to that problem. You see, the problem is not how do we get people's flesh under control. How do we get people to stop sinning? That's not the problem. The nature of the problem is how do we resurrect mankind so that they can be alive to God, so that he can once again guide and lead his people individually and personally within their being throughout their lives. That is the nature of the problem. And God made a promise to Abraham that he would solve this problem and he would do it in this way. He would do it through Abraham. That eventually there would be a child who was born as a child of Abraham and he would be the person who would reconcile the world to himself through his death and that death was accomplished on the cross. And in addition to that reconciliation, he would then provide salvation which has to do with the restoration of the Holy Spirit. The restoration of the Spirit, not through works, not through obedience, but through trusting and believing that God has actually accomplished that, that he has offered this for free. And you respond to that truth through recognition and the depths of your being that that is reality, that that is the truth. And you receive what he has offered to you. And when you acknowledge your condition, you acknowledge his provision And when you receive the spirit that he is offering to you for free, you must trust and believe that he will do that. You must trust him. You must believe him. I believe that he will respond to that and he will come to you and he will illuminate you in such a way that you will eventually see that that has been fulfilled. But when God makes this covenant, when he makes this promise, he makes it with himself. He makes the promise to Abraham. This is a promise that is made to an individual. But the fulfillment of this promise depends solely on the living God, not on Abraham, not because of what Abraham does or does not do, but because of what God has declared he will do. And he expresses this by saying that he makes the promise to a seed, not to seeds as in many. When he says to the seed, he then refers to the Lord Jesus himself. He says, I'm going to make this promise. I'm going to make this covenant with the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, he will fulfill his part by living and then dying and then resurrecting from the dead. And the living God will do his part by providing the Lord Jesus with his incarnation and with his presence and with his life and with the community and with the political infrastructure that he will walk into, he will be involved in his death and he will be involved in his resurrection. There is a lot to be said. There's a complete study involved in terms of who is it that caused Jesus to die and who is it that caused Jesus to raise from the dead. When you do this study, you'll find that Jesus decided to die. He caused himself to die. And you will also find that the Heavenly Father caused him to die. You will also find that the Lord Jesus said that he would raise himself from the dead and the Heavenly Father said that he would raise Jesus from the dead. How is it possible that both people can be involved in this? Both people can claim their participation in this covenant and yet they seem to be doing the exact same thing. How is it that this can be accomplished? The way that this can be accomplished is by understanding that these are abstractions. To say that there is a father, a son is nothing more than an abstraction 
of the living God himself who has revealed himself in multiple ways so that we can see him in small pieces so that eventually by putting these pieces together we can have a bigger understanding of the enormous nature of our God, the unlimited nature of our God. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, for example, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now folks, how is it that he can be both the Prince of Peace and the Everlasting Father? To say that he's a prince means that he's not necessarily the king, he's the prince. Just to give you an example. To say that he's a child who is born, and to also say that he is the everlasting father, the mighty God. How can the mighty God be a child? These are the kinds of questions that can only be answered by recognizing that there is one God who has manifested himself in multiple ways so that we can see him in small ways, in small pieces, so that we can withstand a portion of who he is in his fullness. We will never know him in his fullness, but we can see a portion of him a piece at a time in some ways. So when he says in verse 16 that he makes this promise to the seed, he's saying that he is making this promise to himself. He is making this covenant with himself. And because he is doing that, he will fulfill his part This covenant does not depend on the performance of anyone else but him. And if we will see that, then we have the opportunity to recognize that the new covenant has nothing to do with our performance. It has to do with his. That our life in Christ Jesus has nothing to do with our performance. It has to do with his. That is the foundation, that is the beginning of the new life that we now have before us. In verse 17, this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. I'm just about out of time for this program, so let me just summarize, and I'll continue with this in the next program. Let me just summarize what he's saying in verse 17. He is saying, just because the law was given 430 years later doesn't mean that it's a replacement for the promise that he made to Abraham. Again, just because... The law was given 430 years later doesn't mean that the promise of the Messiah doesn't mean that the promise of the new covenant is no longer going to be fulfilled. And it doesn't mean that we have to find some place for the law into the new covenant. It doesn't mean that at all. Well, then what does it mean? It means that there was an unresolved problem that God decided to resolve before he fulfilled the promise that he made. There was an unresolved problem. Now again, 
What is the problem that needs to be resolved? The real problem that needs to be resolved is salvation. He needs to resurrect humanity who is dead. Humanity is dead because everyone has been born in the image of Adam, being spiritually dead, not having the life of God within them. That is the fundamental problem of humanity that God is resolving. So if that is the problem, then what am I talking about by saying that there's another problem that God is going to solve before he solves that one? What I'm talking about is the problem of do we live according to the knowledge of good and evil or not? Yes, there were two problems that needed to be resolved. The first and most important problem is the spiritual death of humanity. But the other problem is what caused the fall of humanity to begin with when Adam believed the lie that he only needed to know what is good and evil. He only needed to know the law. He only needed to know what was right and wrong. He did not need the Spirit of God dwelling within him to live the life that God created him for. That was the lie that he believed that caused the problem. So we have two problems. We have the problem of this lie, and then we have the problem of the consequences of this lie. So 430 years later, God provided the law through Moses in order to deal with this problem of do we live according to the knowledge of good and evil first, to deal with this issue. And then once this issue was finally dealt with to his satisfaction, this question of do we live this way or do we not live this way, after that was accomplished, then he came to solve the problem of the spiritual death of humanity. That's what he's talking about. And unfortunately, people are still stuck in this smaller problem of do we live according to the knowledge of good and evil as the devil deceived us into living. Do we live that way? or not. People are stuck in that to the extent where they won't let it go. But until you let it go, you will not have the privilege or the opportunity to live in the new covenant in the new way of life that is a life by faith, not by works. And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,